This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits. What works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks a lot for joining me. A few weeks ago, anyone who follows the Connecticut news media was pretty shocked when they heard that anchor Dennis House and WFSB Television were parting ways. Over nearly 30 years, House had become the face of the station and one of the most prominent TV journalists in Connecticut. House hosted the Sunday morning political show Face the State, which regularly broke news and highlighted some of the best reporters in Connecticut, including many from the Connecticut Mirror. Dennis House was a regular moderator for political debates, and you'd also see him at all kinds of Hartford events, raising money for charities, throwing support behind his adopted hometown. His co-anchors over the years included his wife, Kara Sundlin, who's still at the station, Gail King, now of CBS This Morning, and his longtime on-air partner, Denise DiCenzo, who died tragically last December. Dennis House hasn't given many sit-down interviews since his departure, so I was glad when he joined me earlier this week on Zoom. He was in his backyard in Yukon gear with a nice bonfire in the background. As you'll hear, we talked about the changing news business, about the city he loves, what he's learned about moderating debates, and whether he's interested in entering politics himself. Hmm. What you'll learn is something that I've known for a while. Dennis House is one of the nicest, most sincere people I've ever met, inside the business or out. Dennis House, welcome to Steady Habits. Thanks so much for joining me. Great to see you, my friend. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. And uh, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff that probably we went through together over the years and a a lot about your career. I have to ask off the start, though, we don't know a whole lot about why you left after 28 years of being on our televisions at Channel 3. What can you tell us about why you're not there anymore? Well, I had been there for 28 years. It was a great run. And I'm very grateful to WSB and the people of Connecticut for keeping me there for so long. I think that if anyone uh, pokes around and, and does some research, they'll find out that, um, you know, there are about 10 of us who are no longer at Channel 3, um, mostly because the, you know, the company said there were layoffs. As I recall, that was one of the, um, you know, the comments that they made. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm now looking for the next adventure, whatever that may be. But I'm extremely grateful for a state that embraced some kid from Michigan 28 years ago, and here I am. It's interesting. You had me on your program shortly after I announced my departure from Connecticut Public Broadcasting after sure. 25 years. And and I will say, Dennis, your, your answer sounds an awful lot like my answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I always believe it, it, it's best to take the high road. And I think that, you know, John, you and I um, had what many people will never have, and that is a long, storied run at an organization. And if you look at the average time that, you know, when I started off in this business in 19, uh, my first anchor job was 1989. I, I have a lot of friends who've worked in six or seven markets since then. And so for me to be in the Hartford market for, you know, 28 years and you for, you know, just about as long, if that long, I mean, this is something that we should be grateful for because it doesn't happen that often. No, no, it doesn't. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, how have you seen your business, specifically television news, change over all those years? Well, when I first started here, there was no internet. We didn't really have cell phones. We had a couple of cell phones in big bags in 1992 that we would 
be able to take out from the assignment desk and drive around with them. I think I got my own cell phone maybe mid to late 90s. It was a big brick, and I only kept it in the glove compartment for emergencies. It wasn't something you use on a regular basis. In terms of doing research on stories, we would be given, let's say I was going off to cover, uh, um, at the time, Congresswoman Barbara Canelli. They would give me a folder with some information about her and the issue she was talking about, and that's how that would work. If we covered, I remember once when I had to cover a story in the Naugatuck Valley, I believe it was a fire at, uh, at a rubber factory, as I recall, I had to go to the library to look up information about that factory because I didn't know anything about it. And I was only getting hearsay from the neighbors. Oh, it's been here since 1870 or whatever. And so, you know, the research certainly has changed. Now we just Google things and they pop up and you can have an instant answer. Yeah, so, so that's the biggest change I've noticed yeah. uh, when I first got here. Hartford was Hartford, New Haven was the 23rd biggest metro area in the country. We had six congressional seats. We now have five. It's market 33. We've seen a population slide. When I first moved here, we had the Hartford Whalers. We had downtown department stores. Uh, the life was very different. Yeah, I want to ask you a little bit more about Hartford because you're such a Hartford guy now. You love the city and you've been such an advocate for it. And I want to get to some of that. As we talk, though, about the way the, the news business has changed, I, I think about this a lot, too. Obviously, the research, uh, an awful lot about the way that people consume the news has has changed. In commercial television news specifically, how, how do you think it's doing? I mean, do you think that it's doing the the job that you'd hoped it would have been doing when you started as an anchor back in 1989 or whatever? Well, I do think local news provides a service and, and that is still needed to this day because you can't always get it. Part of the problem is that back in the early 90s, we didn't have blogs. We didn't have these opinion shows that some people think are news. And so sometimes you see something on, you know, for instance, my mother, uh, a few years back, I remember she saw something on Facebook that said um, Barack Obama's mother-in-law was going to be getting a government pension. <laughs> and she asked me about it. She's like, why would she get a government pension? I said, well, she's not. Why would, you know, well, someone posted on Facebook and then under, it looked like a news article and it said Boston Tribune. Now I grew up in Boston, so did my mom. I said, have you ever heard of the Boston Tribune? She's like, no. I said, because it doesn't exist. It's not a legitimate news organization. Someone wrote that and put that out there. And then it gets shared. And so, you know, we didn't have those issues with some false and, uh, you know, fake news, so to speak, being spread um, by, uh, you know, by some of these websites that are out there. We just didn't have that. When you turned on the evening news, um, you know, that's all you had, really. You know, cable, all these opinion programs. And there are some legitimate news programs on CNN, MSNBC and Fox. But there are also plenty of opinion programs that people only that's all they watch. So that's all they have. And that's all the information they get. Well, what about the business model piece of it? The The fact is, is that your business is so reliant on advertising revenue, the business that I was in for such a long time, so reliant on membership revenue. Both of those things took a big hit during this, yeah. this year of COVID. They're not the only two businesses by far to have been affected in this way. But I guess I'm just wondering now that you get a chance to sit back a little bit and analyze this from the outside, how do you think the, the business of commercial TV news is looking right now? Well, I think in, in, in the COVID year, it's tough. And obviously there have been layoffs and cutbacks at television stations and radio stations across the nation. Uh, Connecticut is not alone because advertising revenue has gone way down. People aren't buying things. So those companies that sell them aren't advertising as much as they used to. And it's kind of sad. I just, you know, I had an outreach from some people in downtown Hartford who say they have had no customers in some of their stores and businesses. It's really hard. And you look at, 
you know, Max Bebo's little sandwich shop that I used to go to for years, dating back to the time when Channel 3 was downtown. I just closed last week after probably 20 odd years in business being right across from the Civic Center. Um, Stackpole Moore and Tryon, which is a business I believe, John, is probably over 100 years old, is really, really struggling. We may see these businesses fade away and that have happened in other cities and towns across Connecticut. So it's really, really tough. And I think uh, the media is certainly feeling uh, the pinch as well. Maybe you can take me back to the time when you first arrived in, in the city. I'll just tell you briefly, I may have told you the story before, but I was living in Boston, working at a radio job up there. And I'm originally from Pittsburgh. And my wife and I were trying to get tickets to go see Mario Lemieux and the Penguins playing at the old Boston Garden. And you couldn't get a ticket. You just couldn't get a ticket. And so we're like, you know what? If we want to see Mario, why don't we take a drive down to Hartford where we can get tickets at the Civic Center? So we did that. And this would have been in uh, about 1993 or so. And my wife said, John, I, I hope we never have to live here. <laughs> and, and within about six months, I was, I was working here and we have stayed and we love it. We love the city. We love, we love all of Connecticut. So that's my story. How did you view Hartford when you first showed up? When I came in for my job interview, uh, downtown was pretty crowded with people there are there were fewer people living downtown then the certainly much you know many more now are living in these new apartment buildings that have been built but there seemed to be more people on the streets back then and i remember i was confused as to where to park because constitution plaza is a little tricky and so i ended up parking i think over near um over near the gold building for whatever reason i walked across state house square uh it was about nine o'clock in the morning and they, they had the cannon went off these men in revolutionary garb would come out i believe at nine and four every day and they would set off the cannon which was a great thing and i thought this is really really cool <laughs> and then i um you know walked up to the station which was right downtown and the whole bit and there were pictures of lyndon johnson speaking on the front steps of broadcast house in 1964 that's i thought this is this is pretty cool um and i remember walking into channel three and compared to my station in michigan this was like disney world you know they had everything every whistle and bell and really some, uh, you know, great people who just, when I watched them, I was like, David Ushery and Gail King and uh, these people were Jim Bison. They were awesome on television. And I thought, how am I going to make it here? So that was my first impression of it. And then I got hired and I was offered a job in Cleveland at the same time. So I had to choose between Hartford and Cleveland. And I chose Hartford mostly because I was from Boston and wanted to get back to New England, but also the Whalers played a key role because I, I vowed after being in Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, that I wanted to be in a city that had a pro team. And, of course, they had a pro team, and they also had the Celtics, who played four games a year. Yeah. Um, but after I lived there, I remember I did all my uh, Christmas shopping that year downtown. There was a gap on Pratt Street. There was G-Fox. There was the Whalers store. There, there were a lot of things downtown. More more retail, I think, than we have today. I think probably the same amount of restaurants. But I just remember thinking, this is a pretty good place. Yeah, and, and you you fell in love with it. I mean, you've really been an advocate for the city, and it's a city that I think you and I both know needs advocates. I mean, people are, including people who've run, lived there for years, are running it down constantly. They constantly say negative things about Hartford and, and not, not Dennis House. Tom Condon, the legendary uh, Hartford current columnist, who's now with The Mirror, wrote a column it, during my infancy there. And I remember he said, it, it, it's hard to feel bad you know, bad for a city with two left feet, because even though they made progress, they always took two steps backwards for whatever they did. And, and so you always kind of felt like, why couldn't Hartford do this right? But I, I, I'm a big fan of Hartford. I think it's got tremendous potential. I think it's a historic city. I think the history, we don't even begin to 
uh, celebrate in this city. You go to Boston, you go to even South Street, you know, Seaport, New York or Newport or, you know, uh, in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Portland, Maine. They have these cobblestone streets that really celebrate their history. We don't do that enough here. I think we should do more of it. We're one of the original 13 colonies. You could do so much to beef up tourism here that we just don't even, um, you know, begin to do. But um, but they do some, you know, some odd things. Like I remember um, about a year and a half ago, we got all these complaints from viewers who said, I, you know, I'm getting like a parking ticket every time I go downtown. And I, and I swear the parking spots are smaller and they're giving you a ticket if you park over the white line. So I went out there one day, I went to West Hartford Center and I measured the ones around Bushnell Park and they were significantly smaller. They had made all the parking spots around the park and in the downtown area smaller so that they could fit more cars down on the block. However, if you have four kids and you've got a Chevy Tahoe, why would you go downtown if you know you're going to get a ticket? Um, so like something like that, I would have said, you know what? You know, it's it's not our business to tell you to dr- go drive a Prius over a <laughs> suburb. That's what you need. If you've got five kids, you need something larger. Uh, but I think that was the message they were trying to send. Um, oh, let's encourage people to buy smaller cars. But I think they, they scared off a lot. I mean, I know some people who after that ticket said they'd never go downtown again. So something like that, I think, is one of those scratch your head moments like Harvard's making so much progress. Why do something like that? I want to ask you about about some of your favorite memories. And they're probably not all rosy memories, but some of the stories that you remember covering during your career, Channel 3, that really stand out. What are the things you think about first? Well, I think I covered uh, five governors, right? So I had Weicker, Roland, Rell, uh, Malloy and Lamont, and 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 I got to know all of them in different ways. Weicker I found to be very intimidating, and when I started here, it was of course his popularity was very low. The, it was after the income tax rally, and he was he was not going to seek re-election, so he was kind of gruff, and uh, you'd ask him a question, and sometimes you'd get really barked at. So that was kind of intimidating for a new journalist in the city. Um, you know, th- there were all sorts of stories that I remember. Um, you know, obviously nine eleven was huge. Um, there were um, floods, blizzards, uh, fires that all of, you know, yeah, I walked through all of them. I, I remember some of the stories that really stick with me is we all grew up in a little bit of a bubble. You know, we grew up in our neighborhoods and, um, you know, mine was a typical, not terribly diverse suburban Boston neighborhood. And so when I got the opportunity to, to go to maybe a blue collar neighborhood in, uh, in Sonia or, you know, a neighborhood in Hartford's North End, I got to meet all sorts of different people who were different from me. And, one story I remembered, you know, we covered all these shootings in the North End. There was a spate of them this one particular year, and the state police came in to help out. And they just seemed kind of routine after a while. So I said, let's go there one night and just let's talk to some of the people who live there. And this is their home, and they're you know proud of it, and they're trying to make it work. And I remember I spoke to these 10-year-old kids who were really worried about violence, who were worried that maybe one of their friends was going to get shot. And these were, it, it was, we called it Growing Up on Garden. It was nominated for an Emmy. And there were these two kids uh I'll never get them, Tyrone and Daryl. And we went back to visit them five years later and they were no longer friends. You know, one had, had been, you know, and let's say gone down the wrong road and the other was still you know, working to make it work. And, and, you know, Tyrone, I believe this day is married with kids and um, has made a good life for himself. So I think those are the stories that really impacted me the most when I got to meet people who were not like me in Connecticut and really tell their stories. Mm. How did you grapple with the, coverage of the Sandy Hook shooting, given the fact that it's a news story that you have to cover. It's a news story about real people. It's here in your backyard. You're a parent. 
you are someone who loves the state and wants it to to do well, but you also have to read the news. I know it was incredibly difficult for for me to cover. How did you how did you process that story? Well, I remember that day vividly because I went to the toy chest in West Hartford to send my nephew a birthday gift and um, got his present ready. And then I was going to pick my daughter up who was getting out of, she was seventh time. She was going to get out of school a little bit early and we were going to have lunch together and have like a daddy daughter day. And instead I had to go home. You know, I got the call that something had happened there. I went home. I, you know, threw a suit on, went to pick her up and she knew something was wrong. She goes, dad, you have to go to work. Don't you? I said, yeah, something really bad happened. So, um, I brought her home. I came in and I anchored with Kara um, and, uh, you know, we just looked at each other and his parents, the, the, the information that was um, that was being told in our earpiece that, you know, first you heard a number that was even that was eight, eight, eight people are dead. And it was just staggering. And then as the day went on, just how and, I, you know, we were tethered to that desk. There was no room for a break to cry or anything like that or, or to uh, even console each other. Thankfully, I was with Kara. So we had that, you know, that connection that, you know, we were worried about, the, you know, like just what our kids were going to learn about this, how we would tell them about that. Um, and then as the day went on, it was just then Denise came in and relieved Kara when Kara went home. And just the whole day was just so, so emotional. And, and over the next few months, I know there was this rush to reach out to parents and try to get interviews. And I just I just couldn't do it. And, and I, um, you know, sometimes you just can't bother people. Um, and, uh, I eventually did, um, you know, interview a couple parents over time. And, um, I spoke to one on the phone who, who was very, very nice for a while. And then he just hung up on me, didn't want to do it. And so it, you know what those things are like. And I, and I remember I will make a little confession, John, when I first started at channel three, it was Christmas day in 1992. And I don't know, I came in wearing like a red shirt or something thinking we'd do something featurey, Right. And, uh, three people were killed in a crash in I-95. And I remember my boss told me that I had to go and knock on the family's door. The dad and two daughters, I believe, were killed. And I just couldn't do it. I just could not bother these people on that day. I was kind of new at the time. Um, later, I learned, though, just over the years, that some people who lose a loved one want to speak. They want to tell the story about that person. So you need to reach out in a polite way and just offer that because they may want to do it. Yeah. Yeah, it is so hard to cover those things. It's it's just awful, heartbreaking. One of the things that, that you and I actually got a chance to do together uh, on a number of occasions uh, that that one does when you are the the lead anchor at a television station in the city is is you get to moderate debates. Yes. And before we get into you know some of the the, the current debates, which I think have maybe taken a turn away from something that we either of us think are particularly useful, g- give me some give me some ideas about how you would approach a debate for say governor or, or Senate and, and what you'd think about in advance as you're preparing, because the moderator plays such an important role in honestly making sure that that either comes off as an event that people can look to for information or just a flop, something that people should, should avoid watching altogether. Well, I remember, um, you know, sometimes I've done debates like you have done in terms of being all by myself. And then I've also moderated with some panelists. I've co-moderated, you know, for instance, with you, we did Tom Foley and Dan Malloy, maybe another one too. And uh, I remember that particular debate, you and I worked very closely on, on questions. And, and I always tell people, John Denkowski is much smarter than I am. So he came up with some really, really great (laughs) questions. I came up with some good ones as well. But then at the end, we had some quick questions that I always like to find how much are people paying attention to their state and, that particular year, there was a big uh, debate over whether UConn should play Notre Dame. 
And it seemed like a silly question, but I wanted to see what the candidates felt about it. And I believe the state was going to spend money to play them or, or, or are they going to get paid to play? You know, I, I think that they were something. going to get paid to play Notre yes, Dame, right. but, but the game had to be moved to Giants Stadium. Yes, that's right. That's, that's right. what it was. So it wasn't even going to be played here. So Connecticut residents wouldn't be able to go to Rensselaer Field or whatever and see Notre Dame play. Yeah. And it, it was a question they probably didn't prep for or study. And it wasn't a gotcha question. It was just how much you're paying attention to this, you know, the culture you know, of our state, you know, uh, you know, some of these side stories, so to speak. And uh, I, as I recall, Tom Foley wasn't familiar with it. Nope. And uh, that was it was all over the news and people were talking about it on the radio. So. Again, major question? No. Was it one of the ones you would ask at the top of the debate? Absolutely not. Um, uh, when you do a debate by yourself, you really have to make sure that you know the, the possible answers to the questions you ask, because they may try to, to say something that's not true. And they sound pretty good when they're saying it, all candidates. You know, they give a false answer or whatever or something they don't know, and they all try to sound convincing when they do it. Um, and, and we all don't have fact checkers in our earpieces saying, hey, that's not true. It was 27,000 or whatever the answer may be. So you kind of have to be prepared for as much as possible. And sometimes the um, you also have to be very you know um, careful when you call out a candidate for saying something false, because if you miss something on the next candidate, you look like you have a bias. And sometimes the rules set in advance are like there are no follow ups or you have to move on. So those are kind of tough. Sometimes that's the toughest thing about debating. I think, you know, the, the easiest kind of debate to do is when you're just the moderator and you have and you call in two people and they have the questions and you just sort of have to be the timekeeper, which is also difficult. Yeah. Oh, no, it's very difficult. I, I, I have to say, I remember prepping for that debate and I remember you putting that question in at the end. And I remember thinking to myself, I wouldn't ask that question. I don't I. I but Dennis, I think <laughs> Dennis wants to ask that question. I don't know that I get the question, but let's put the question in. And when you asked it. Immediately, I saw one candidate go, Dan Malloy, this is yeah. something, this is the sort of thing I pay attention to. And the other candidate, Tom Foley, be like, what the hell is this question for? And I thought, what, what a brilliant question that was. I, I was completely wrong about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad you liked it. I know it didn't seem like a terribly serious question at the time I put it down, but I just wanted to sit because, you know, and also I think when you're doing a debate, you want to loop in as many uh, voters and viewers and listeners as possible. And so if, if, if there's a question that gets those sports fans involved in the debate, and I learned something from the, uh, never met him, but uh, the late John F. Kennedy Jr., his magazine, George. And I remember when he started, it, it turned out to be a failure. It didn't work, you know, uh, turn out. But, you know, one of his goals was to, to get people who aren't engaged in politics engaged in the political you know, event. And that's why, like, sometimes when, I, when you're doing a political interview, if you if, if all you talk about is education, you're not going to appeal to everybody. Yeah. You know, there are some who don't have children who, who just aren't you know going to like zone out during it. Um, or if you concentrate on just Hartford or New Haven, people who don't live there, don't care about it, aren't going to be interested. So I, I think when you're putting together a debate and it's always great if you get the first debate because you can ask whatever you want. If it's like the third debate, then a lot of questions have already been asked and you don't want to waste your time with something they've already talked about. So as you look back at the debate that we just saw, the presidential debate, which was, I mean, by all accounts, an absolute disaster in terms of information for people. Um, (laughs) What is it you, what is it you saw in there as a veteran debate moderator? What would you, what would you have done differently? Well, I think that Chris Wallace definitely needed some sort of a mic 
kill or something like that, uh, because I think the interrupting was getting out of hand. Um, You know, uh, as I listened to both Trump and Biden, I tried to put myself in the shoes of their advisor, because I think that, you know, they both had moments where they didn't answer questions very well. And, And I think that they, you know, sometimes Trump would have been better off if he let just Biden talk for a while, because sometimes candidates tend to trip themselves up, both Republicans and Democrats, when they start to talk too long. And so when you interrupt them, you cut off. And there were a few moments when Trump interrupted some things he probably should have let Biden go because Biden may have said something that would have been. uh, But instead, you know, the story was that Trump came across as rude and interrupting all the time. And it just wasn't, uh, um, you know, I'm sure his advisors, you know, were thinking, oh, this is not this is not helpful to our cause. And, you know, one of the big things is you can be sometimes likable people who do not necessarily know the issues all that well get elected. Because they come across as, I like that guy. And, um, and uh, you know, look back at, you know, Bush and Kerry. You know, Kerry came across as very unlikable in some of these debates. And uh, Tim Kaine, another one with, uh, you know, came across as, you know, I don't want to have a beer with this guy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of people vote that way. They, they, they do. But what's interesting is that despite all of that, we ended up with Dan Malloy as governor twice, right? Like sometimes people True. don't come across as terribly likable, but yet people say, well, this guy seems to know what he's talking about. Yeah. Well, you know, I think both, um, you know, Dan Malloy and Tom Foley had that problem sometimes where they didn't come across as extremely cuddly. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think maybe, uh, Things tend to be cyclical after a Republican governor. Maybe it was time, you know, people felt it was time for a change. Malloy was heavy on policy. You get into a lot of details that some other candidates did not. Um, And so I think that, uh, and it was also too, I think, um, you know, Governor Rell didn't seem like she was totally embracing Tom Foley either. And I think that was part of it. So I just have one question for you, Dennis. What, what happens with you next? I mean, what do you, what do you do now? Because you've, You've had a career in which people in Hartford, where you've chosen to live, identify you as Dennis House, the guy on Channel 3. So, I mean, what do you see as the next act here? You know, I, I, I kind of done this since I got out of college and it's been rewarding and I've really liked it. But I also want to, you know, I've, I've had, as you can imagine, as you did as well, I've had a lot of phone calls, a lot of people. Hey, you know, would you be interested in X, Y, Z? And so I'm looking at a lot of different things. I've been encouraged to do everything from, you know, maybe work for a sports team to uh, teaching to different forms of, you know, media, all these things, business. You know, I, I've just had a lot of things come my way that think about this. Uh, running for office is something that, um, and that started because years ago um, I was um, I was asked to run for mayor of Hartford. And so someone said, what would you do if you didn't um, do this? I said, oh, maybe I'd want to run for mayor of Hartford. This was like 2000, you know, 2007 or something like that. So there's nothing open right now that I would be interested in running for. But maybe down the road, I'm not certainly ruling that out because I do believe as journalists that we serve people. Part of it is that um, as a journalist, I've always been an independent. There are some things that Democrats do that I say, oh, that's pretty good. And some that Republicans say, oh, that's pretty good. And I, I voted for both. And But when you decide you want to run for office, you you, you automatically alienate a whole bunch of people. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm kind of in that position in terms of that. It's 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 not like in the near future, because obviously there's nothing open right now. And I think I do want to work. Yeah. You, you It sounds like you're, you're, you're taking this this pretty seriously, though, this idea of running for office someday. You know, I just it's 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 something that I find interesting if I could give back and serve. And 
uh, you know, I've got some ideas for a few things that I think would uh, would help people and help our city or state. And uh, but again, it's nothing imminent, John. I I I, I just it's something that's been suggested to me, and um, I, I you know I look at some of the people that I've interviewed, and it's 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 hard work. You know, you mm-hmm. look at like a Senator Blumenthal or a you know Congresswoman Deloro. They you know they work Monday through Friday in Washington. The, that fundraising for Congress is relentless. That is a tough tough thing to do. Um, and, uh, and then they come home on the weekends and they have to go to all the towns in their district, you know, Governor Lamont, the same thing, uh, you know, being a politician, uh, you know, elected official is hard work and not that I'm afraid of that, but I also have two kids. And so who knows, I, yeah, I'm well, still young enough that maybe I would do it at a later date. Yeah. Okay. What do you, you ever talk to your wife about it? What does she say? Cause mine, mine would kill me dead if I said well, I was going to go run for something. <laughs> so Karen's dad was, um, was the governor of Rhode Island. Uh, for two terms, and he did it late in life. Um, he, he was a war hero, and then he worked for the government for a while. He was a, uh, a prosecutor, and then he went into business. He did business for a while, and you know, made some money, and then he went into politics. He wasn't elected till he was seventy. So, uh, but he always felt that that was his most rewarding job. And also, he he told me, uh, you know, he's since passed away, but he did tell me that when you do it later in life, uh, your convictions are more clear your viewpoints are more solid. You're, you're less apt to be persuaded because you go in there and listen, I've had a life and here's what I know what I want to do. And he did a lot of things that Rhode Island really needed at the time. And he got voted out of office for them. Uh, and now people are like, thank goodness you built that bridge. Thank goodness the airport came to Providence. Thank goodness that, you know, um, you know, you and you know the mayor got together and helped revitalize the cities and lowered the boat tax so that Boat companies would so all, all these things that people complained about when he did them are now a kind of hallmarks of Rhode Island life. Yeah. So yeah. so you know it, it doesn't have to be now, and uh, hey you know also too um, Senator Ted Kennedy Jr. who I will send as a friend of mine and 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 I I've been to many times and he said you know you don't have to be elected to serve, and I think that's one reason he got out of politics because. I think he did it. You know, there was a lot of probably family pressure to do something. He was a state senator for a while, and he he probably worked on a lot of things that took him away from what he really wanted to do, and that is he really wants to help the disabled. And so now that's what he's devoted his life to, people with disabilities. And uh, um, as he said, and and probably the most accomplished person in his family, he told me, was Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was never elected. And look at the millions of lives that she helped by creating the Special Olympics and working on that over the years. So you don't have to be elected to serve. So I don't want to commit to running for something. It may be something else. Yeah, well, well, we'll be interested to see what happens in the short term, Dennis. I will say that the fire that I see behind you is starting to peter out a little bit. You might have to stoke well, that. It's- <laughs> let me put a log on it for you. Um, <laughs> Look at that. Sorry, go Sometimes ahead. I just like to sit out here and have coffee in the morning and light a you know, light fire. Carrie says you're getting ready for work. So she doesn't have the leisure time that I do. But um, <laughs> And the kids are doing homeschooling this week because it's every other week, one in, one out. Oh, so they're home this week. But So it's kind of a nice, mellow day here. And I, and, and I thought I'd give you a better backdrop than the home office. I love it. I love it. I love the fireside chat. Dennis House, it's always good to see you. Thank you so much for spending some time with me. Best of luck in your next endeavor, whatever it is. And we'll we'll stay in touch, all right? Maybe you and I will be working together another time. You just never know. You never know. You never know. There's there's lots to do. <laughs> I'd enjoy that. John, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, man. Be all well. Right. Bye-bye. Cheers. That's all the time we have for Steady Habits. 
Thanks for joining me. If you go to steadyhabits.org, you can watch Dennis's farewell to me when I left my last job. We had a nice talk on his old show. Thanks to Jess Friedman, Kyle Constable, Beth Hamilton, and Bruce Potterman. Our Steady Beats are provided by George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson, and were recorded at Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut. I'm John Dankosky, and we'll talk to you soon.